Okay, here we are once again live together. Thank you for being here and bringing me all of your questions. Today, we are talking about busting myths about Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism. There's so much information out there. And you know, I often talk about the different groups and how there's very few, if not pretty much one really great Facebook group that I like, maybe two, but you have to be careful about all the different information that you are exposed to and that you take in on a daily basis and apply to your life and to your choices surrounding your Hashimoto's or your hypothyroidism. I do the backslash because if you have Hashi, you are hypo. That's actually a question that I get sometimes. So just so you know, if you have Hashimoto's, you have hypothyroidism, 90% of all hypo is Hashimoto's, is the autoimmune form. So that's why we do the backslash, but I digress. Today we are talking about busting myths around this particular condition. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Amy Horniman. I'm a functional medicine practitioner specializing in treating thyroid conditions, hormone imbalances, and all around just fixing you. So why the hat? And I didn't really get ready for you guys today. Now, those of you listening on the podcast, you have nothing to worry about. You don't have to see the hot mess. So last night, 3 a.m. in the ER with my mom. So you're going to have to excuse the look, but I'm still here with you. And we're going over lots of information. So get your notepad out. Don't mind the look. Just listen. Okay. So starting out. I want to start with something really important and it actually came across my desk today with a patient's blood work. Iron. There's a myth out there and it's not, you know, I mean, you hear in the Facebook groups, you hear in different forums and on different blogs how important iron is from those in the know. But oftentimes in conventional medicine, it gets blown off or I'll see an incomplete iron panel. It will be missing ferritin. And many conventional practitioners don't know the importance of an iron panel when it comes to the health of your thyroid. So low iron, specifically low ferritin, but low, we're going to say low iron in general. Think about it. If your iron is low, you're going to be fatigued. You're going to have brain fog. If your ferritin is low, just on its own, not even the effect on the thyroid itself. But if ferritin is low, your hair is going to be crappy. It's going to be falling out. It's going to be dry like straw. Now, ferritin is important for T4 to T3 conversion. So when we're in a situation of low iron status, it can actually mimic these symptoms of hypothyroidism, like the fatigue and the hair and the brain fog, because it is so vital for the health of your thyroid. So lack of iron can actually reduce the function of the thyroid gland because the thyroid uses those enzymes to produce thyroid hormones. So not only is iron important, low iron is going to mimic hypothyroid symptoms. It's also going to exacerbate your hypothyroid symptoms. So it's kind of like you're putting two in one, you know, just piling all these things that can affect your thyroid and affect your symptoms. And then thirdly, it's actually reducing the function of the thyroid gland itself because the thyroid needs those enzymes, needs the enzymes of iron to produce T4 and T3, the two thyroid hormones. Number two, a lot of people say, I don't have low stomach acid because I don't have reflux. I don't have acid reflux. 
you have to remember that many, many times with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, a person will just have naturally low hydrochloric acid. So hydrochloric acid is vitally important for your digestive system, for extracting nutrients from your food, for supporting your body and all of its functions. And low hydrochloric acid can actually cause constipation. So now you have constipation from low HCL. You have constipation from being hypothyroid and having Hashimoto's. On top of suffering from symptoms of hypothyroidism, there's a lower uptake of iron and other minerals. So now you have the iron problem on top of everything else. So now it's the triple whammy. You have iron issues. You have low hydrochloric acid. Now you have constipation from Hashimoto's. We tell people to supplement with hydrochloric acid or betaine HCL to improve digestion, to improve overall intake of minerals, breakdown of your food, and to improve your constipation that you're already experiencing with Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism. Okay, so low hydrochloric acid also downregulates the uptake of iron and other minerals. And then this will downregulate thyroid and cause more constipation. So low iron uptake can be due to an unresolved gut issue like low digestive processes. So here you are, you have low iron. Some of you don't know why. Some of you cannot figure it out because you're taking an iron supplement. So you're like, why do I still have this low iron? Why do I still have low ferritin? Sometimes people do need an actual iron IV to really get their levels up because they're not properly absorbing the iron supplement that they're taking. And then many of you know that iron supplements are very constipating. My favorite is Ferrochel Iron by Designs for Health because it has very low, if not zero, side effects on the gut. So we like to use things that are easy on the gut because if we're using an iron supplement to support your iron levels and you're already Hashimoto hypothyroid, then that's the last thing we want to do is add to your constipation and add to your GI issues and have that iron tear up your stomach. No, we don't want to do that. So we want to use a nice, gentle iron that is readily absorbed by the body. Now, if you're taking an iron and you don't see your numbers going up, go back to the gut. Go back to the gut. Are you having digestive issues? Are you breaking down your food? Are you absorbing your supplements? Low hydrochloric acid. So you might need to add on betaine HCL in order to properly digest your food and break down that iron and actually get it absorbed into the body. Now, that's not to say that we can't also add in digestive enzymes. We can cycle a probiotic. Many of you take a probiotic daily. It's not good. You want to cycle them two weeks on, two weeks off, one week on, one week off. Just do not take a probiotic daily. And I do like the spore-based probiotics because they are coated and they go all the way to the small intestine. So they're treating the entire GI tract. But you want to cycle your probiotics, add in some digestive enzymes. Let's say you're adding in the betaine HCL and really start to heal and focus on your gut. So that's what I do when I work with patients that have gut issues. We have a variety of different treatment protocols depending on what is going on. And then someone that's really, really struggling, we might do a test called the GI map. It's phenomenal. 
Um, it's by a company called Diagnostic Solutions. They are absolutely brilliant. And it tests for top to bottom, H. pylori, parasites, SIBO, dysbiosis, an imbalance in your good and bad gut flora. So it can actually tell us which probiotic strains you're low in and which you need to replace. And oftentimes we see that in people that are using probiotics on a day-to-day basis over and over, the same one. So they will become low in other beneficial gut bacteria, beneficial flora. So the people that are using the same probiotic day in and day out, all you're doing is giving yourself that same strain over and over and over again. And listen, our bodies are smart. Eventually the gut's going to say, hey, what about these other billion strains that you're not giving us. Can we have some of that? That's why you have to cycle your probiotics. It's even good to go and and use different ones, different good brands, different strains, or get the GI map so that we know which strains you are actually low in. And sometimes I will do that with a patient. It is an out-of-pocket expense. So I try to, I'm very frugal with my patients. I try to save money with my patients. So it is an out-of-pocket expense, but sometimes it's really worth it if you cannot get to the bottom of what is going on with your gut. I'm going back to ferritin since we're still kind of in the iron and digestive and gut realm. It all ties together. Everything ties together with the body. It all ties together. So ferritin, I mentioned it earlier, it is, it, it really is the most important number in your iron panel, especially if you have hypothyroidism. So a lot of times people say, it doesn't matter how high it is. Ferritin can be as high. Well, we don't want it to be low. We do not want it to be low. We don't want it in that lower quadrant of normal. Oftentimes we talk about conventional medicine, lab value ranges. Remember side of a barn is the standard lab value range. So you're considered normal if you fall in that range. Optimal, we want you in the middle to kind of veering in the upper part of the ferritin range. We don't want you low. So most lab value ranges will start at around the 16, 15, 16 for ferritin. If we're coming in at 16, 17, 20, 25, 30, 42, 50, that's too low. So we still have to supplement to get that up into the optimal range, but we also don't want it too high. So what we'll see if it's too high, when a person is suffering from inflammation, and that's very, very common when you have any kind of autoimmune condition, if you are battling hypothyroidism, remember the thyroid is a master gland. Of course, it's going to affect different inflammatory responses of the body. We talked a few weeks ago about insulin resistance. So if you are insulin resistant, you are naturally going to produce more inflammatory cytokines. And that is going to produce a systemic full body inflammatory effect. With inflammation, there's more iron being pushed into storage. So you don't really want that too high because then you're actually, so your ferritin is going to go up. You're going to end up with low iron because it's all in storage, low iron, that total iron. And then we look at percent sat and TIBC, low iron is going to, even with high ferritin levels is going to increase your reverse T3. So this is where it's all kind of convoluted and you have to kind of write this down. That's why I said, grab a notebook. You got to follow this. We do not want your ferritin too high. That's the iron storage that will push total iron down, which will increase reverse T3. 
So we know reverse T3 is not something that we want high. Optimal is below a 12. I will accept anything from a 12 to a 15 as long as your free T3 is optimal and you're feeling good. Symptoms are down. So reverse T3, we want low. If reverse T3 is high, that's indicative of a conversion issue. So this is where the ferritin and the iron all play a role in that T4 to T3 conversion. Not only do proper iron levels help that T4 to T3 conversion, but too much ferritin and low iron, too much storage, low iron to be used by your body is going to push up reverse T3. And if that's tied into inflammation, then the, you have the inflammation you have the low iron, and then let's say you have some insulin resistance, all of that is working against you. It is definitely working against you and it will push up that reverse T3 through the roof and that will cause hypothyroid symptoms. Foods, you can do meat, eggs, green leafy vegetables, all of those are chock full of iron. But remember, it comes down to if you have a gut issue, you need to make sure you are properly digesting those foods. So sometimes it's just easier to use supplementation, especially if your level is very, very low. Iron has to be taken with vitamin C in the form of azorbic acid and acerola. So you don't want just azorbic, azorbic, say that five times fast, azorbic acid, Many cheap vitamin C supplements are just that. They do not contain the acerola. You want that combination or even just acerola, but most of the time they come in a combo. You want to take vitamin C with your iron for proper breakdown and utilization and absorption. You also do really want to take it with food. I do recommend taking your iron with food. Even the most gentle of supplements like the ferritol iron can still cause some GI distress. I myself have taken it without food. I can usually take anything without food and be fine. And a couple of occasions, it really hurt my stomach. So I highly recommend taking it with the vitamin C and with food. Now, of course, with any kind of iron supplement, uh, well, not so much food, but iron supplement, you have to take four hours away from your thyroid medication. I know for some of you that gets a little bit tricky. I get a lot of questions of this as well. When should I take it? Because I'm taking my T4 here, my T3 here, my armor here. It does take some finagling to figure out exactly the time of day to take your iron, but it's totally doable. Four hours away, especially containing T4. It's not as sensitive with T3, but I still wouldn't risk it. If you're taking T3, we're trying to get your T3 levels into an optimal range and get you feeling better. I wouldn't mess around with taking it within that four hours. You can figure out a time to take your iron away from your thyroid supplements. Okay, another big myth. So we're finally moving on from iron. I wanted to touch on that because it's so important and there's so many different little pieces that we have to touch on and, and talk about and that you need to know because it's so important to the health of your thyroid and to all of your symptoms. So if you're sitting there saying, well, why am I still tired? My thyroid labs look good. Well, why am my hair still falling out? Everything looks good on the thyroid end. It could be go back to the iron and then go back to your gut. And are you breaking down the iron? Are you absorbing it? Very important to touch on. So we spent a little bit of time there. Now moving on, another myth is that you can't eat 
cruciferous vegetables, that you should stay away from these. And I want to touch on this because I know a lot of you are sitting there going, oh, I know that already. Many of you don't. Many of you are still staying away from it. In fact, I had a, it was a seminar with um, colleagues of mine and one of them talking on nutrition. I was presenting a thyroid case and she said, well, I think it's important that you tell your patient to stay away from cruciferous vegetables. And that is true to a point. You want to stay away from eating large amounts of raw cruciferous vegetables because they contain goitrogens and they can affect the absorption of your thyroid medication. So things like cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and cabbage, you just don't want to be eating them like a rabbit. Don't eat them raw. Cook the hell out of them, preferably in some olive oil because that actually brings out the nutrients and the minerals in it. Cook them down. Cook them down. And then you can eat as many as you want. Just don't be dipping them in some ranch and eating them raw every day because that's what you learned in 1980 in terms of dieting. Okay, myth number, I don't know what we're on, five. I need a food sensitivity panel. Let me tell you something, something about food sensitivity panels. And again, you may have heard me mention this, but it's worth mentioning again. One of my mentors, I actually worked with him, Dr. Dan Pompa, years and years and years ago, 20 some years ago. And in his office, we would always be talking nutrition and functional medicine. We butt heads sometimes, but we both went the functional medicine route. And I have learned so much from him. He was actually in the position and Dan, I apologize if I get this a little bit wrong, but he was in the position that he could test himself and some patients on a food sensitivity panel. He did it every day for multiple days in a row. He might've even went two weeks with it and every single panel was different. So you might get a food sensitivity panel done and say, oh my gosh, I have to eliminate eggs because it says I'm sensitive to eggs and I have to eliminate buckwheat and artichokes and berries. Well, it could just be that you happened to expose yourself to eggs and berries and artichokes and some buckwheat multiple times. Maybe that's the staple of your diet. And now it's going to come up high on a food sensitivity panel. They're very erratic, they're expensive, and it's money that you really just don't need. And I know there's functional medicine practitioners out there that are listening now going, no, we use food sensitivity panels all the time and they work. How about just an elimination diet? I know I'll save you $300 and tell you to eliminate the big ones. Like a lot of people are sensitive to eggs. You just have to take them out for a little bit. And then we can try adding them back in. Go ahead and take out the gluten because you need to anyways if you have Hashimoto's. Even if you don't have Hashimoto's, it's going to mess up your gut. So why don't you just remove that anyways? Get rid of the oats and the barley and the corn. Get rid of the bad oils like canola oil and corn oil and soy. Get rid of soy completely. Uh, let's see. What else? We got some dairy. So get rid of the bad dairy. You know, have some organic sour cream, raw cheese, grass-fed cheese, and just get rid of the milk. And there you go. There's your elimination diet. And I just saved you three, $400 on your food sensitivity panel because I can tell you what you're sensitive to because most people are. I once had a patient that came into me with a stack. I mean, a 
book of blood work. And in there, he just had a food sensitivity panel done, not allergy. This is different from allergy. This is different from you who have a peanut allergy, a shellfish allergy. This is sensitivity, meaning when you eat it and you can pretty much figure this out on your own without dropping $300, when you eat it, you react. When I eat garlic and onions, I don't need a $300 panel to tell me I am going to be in some GI pain, pain. You can, if you're in tune with yourself, you can kind of figure this out, but I digress again. Patient came in with this book and he said, I can't eat anything. I am, I am sensitive to every single food in here. I don't know what to eat. I'm down to like two or three choices now. Luckily, he was going to a local allergist of all people, a local allergist who ran another food sensitivity panel. How many things do you think came back with him being sensitive? Just take a guess. It's going to be a goose egg. Big old zero. Was not sensitive to anything. Now, I'm sure a lot of those went down because he did a very strict elimination. Because before he came to see me, he thought basically that he couldn't eat anything. But that's the discrepancy with food sensitivity panels. I urge you to just eliminate that which affects you and eliminate the big guns, the soy, the gluten, the wheat, the barley, the oats, the rye. Take out the eggs if you think that it affects you. Don't drink milk. And then you pretty much figure it out and you'll be okay. Maybe take out the peanut butter and swap it out for some almond butter or cashew butter. Food sensitivity, way different from an allergy. I get it if you guys are allergic. That's a whole different deal, a whole different topic. But food sensitivity panels, you do not necessarily need. Okay, another myth. I think we're on six, seven. See, this is where my brain is. I can't keep track. My TSH is suppressed, so I must be hyper because, you know, the doctor said so too. So I have to drop my meds. Total myth, total myths. Again, it's beautiful when these things actually happen today. Literally, the iron and now this, the low TSH, came across my plate in dealing with patients today. Your TSH is going to become suppressed when you're on any kind of T3 medication. It even becomes suppressed on T4 medication. I know many, a couple of my listeners, Jan, if you're listening, I know that you chimed in one time and you said when you were on T4 only, your TSH became suppressed. It's a natural occurrence. If you think about the mechanism, if you think about the biological process of what TSH is and how it works, of course, it's going to go down as you optimize your thyroid. And even as your T4 goes up and then converts to T3, free T3, to be used by your cell, by your cells, plural, every cell in your body, then your TSH is naturally going to go down because the body, the pituitary is going to have that feedback loop and it's going to sense that it's good, all is well in the body. There's enough thyroid hormone going on that we don't need to scream at the thyroid gland and kick it a couple times to make it produce more. It's cool. So it quiets down. So thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH, goes down. And sometimes it does become suppressed. That does not mean that you are hyper. In order to properly diagnose hyperthyroidism, we have to look at your free T3, your free T4. Those would be through the roof if you're truly in a hyperthyroid state. 
you would be anxious. You would have heart palpitations. You would have insomnia. You would feel like you drank a million cups of coffee. So we have to pair you up as the person with your symptoms to your labs, to that low TSH, but also to the free T3 and the free T4. We have to look at it all together. You cannot just look at a TSH level and call someone hyper. It doesn't work. It does not work that way whatsoever. Last one before I get to your questions. This is a big one. Oh, adrenal blowout is just so common. My adrenals are shot. I have adrenal fatigue. Now, this is going to cause some controversy as well. Go ahead and chime in if you disagree. If you're a functional medicine doc and you're on here and you're saying, nope, I see this all the time in my practice, then let me know because I don't. In general, so let me start here. Cortisol, very, very important for the health of your thyroid. Very, very important if you're taking thyroid medication that we time that well, that we have your cortisol in the perfect little pattern, that it's not too high, that it's not too low. Because too high of cortisol and too low of cortisol can affect your thyroid function and can affect your medication. So it can affect T4 to T3 conversion as well. It's also going to start affecting your blood sugar. It's going to have an inflammatory response in your body because high cortisol equals high blood glucose equals insulin resistance equals those inflammatory cytokines that we talked about. Horrible cascade. However, that being said, when you look at a four-point salivary cortisol panel, not just one point. I don't mean going to the lab in the morning and you come back with high cortisol via your blood. I mean, really looking at a four point salivary cortisol panel. That means taking it first thing upon waking, the next one's around noon, the next one's around five, and the next one is before dinner. That way we have that pattern because it's supposed to start high and gradually go down throughout the day. You want to look at the pattern because one point isn't going to tell us your actual pattern. It is very, 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 very incredibly, very rare that we will see true adrenal blowout. Now, you bit, might, your adrenals might be taxed. They might get exhausted from going through stressors in your life, but it is incredibly rare that they're actually blown out. The only time that I have seen this occur is in a patient of mine who went through a divorce and lost her 20-year-old son all in the same year. And there may have been some other circumstances in there as well. There we saw a true flat line, base, at the very bottom, low cortisol, totally flatlined. That is true adrenal blowout. Your, your adrenals are shot. They can't even produce proper amounts of cortisol anymore. Now, before that happens, we normally see if we could have caught her, let's say a year ago, we may have seen her flatline at the top, just pumping out cortisol left and right, pumping it out, pumping it out. But it is incredibly rare that I will see those flatlines in people. Oftentimes, we'll just see a couple points that are off or a little bit out of balance. That's easy to treat. We can treat with ashwagandha. If you're a male, we can treat with phosphatidylserine. If you're a female, we can give you T3 during the times of low cortisol to try to bump that up. There's so many different approaches that we can do to address cortisol levels. And then of course your sleep and your stress and deep sleep and melatonin and all those other things that go into it. We can treat cortisol levels and those points in a cortisol panel, but I don't want you walking around thinking that you have complete adrenal blowout. I actually, myself, I got a four point done. It wasn't too long ago within the last year. 
Now you have to look at, I've shared with you. Okay. So last night, my mom, 3 a.m. in the hospital. Most of you know, she has Alzheimer's. My dad in the last like five years went through two rounds of chemo. Um, I've moved multiple times. I started a doctor program, running a business, moved my business from one city to the other. I mean, it just stress, 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 stress. And my cortisol panel was fine. So, and that that's one story out of many. I won't share too many of my patient stories, but the patients that get the salivary cortisol panels done, usually they're within that range. And there's just a couple points that we have to treat. Very, very rare that I see true adrenal blowout, true adrenal exhaustion. And if you're there, you've probably been through hell and back. Some of you have been, and you still have a normal cortisol panel. Some of you have been, and you're flatlined, and you're in true adrenal exhaustion. Cortisol is incredibly important for the thyroid, but I think the term adrenal blowout, adrenal exhaustion is just used a little bit too much. So we had to clarify based on the multitude of salivary cortisol panels that I have seen over the years. And then when you dig into the background of that person, because most of my patients are pretty open with all the stressors that they've been through, because that does play a role in your overall health. Once we start digging into that, we see, oh, this is what caused it. And that makes sense. But normal day-to-day life, normal day-to-day stressors usually do not take that kind of a toll on your adrenal glands. So it's a very easy fix. We can totally fix that if you have a couple points that are off. So those are the big, big myths. Oh, there's so many more. There's so many more. Again, this came in this week from a patient. She asked if, because she was reading online, so this is why I did this particular topic, reading online, Dr. Google, some kind of blog, that the keto diet is not good for Hashimoto's. Okay, let's break this down. First of all, if you have Hashimoto's, again, we can tie this all back to everything that we just talked about. Nine times out of 10, there's insulin resistance. That insulin resistance is going to produce inflammatory cytokines. The inflammatory cytokines is going to exacerbate your Hashimoto's. It's also going to drop your iron levels that we talked about and increase your reverse T3. All of that is just inflammation. High insulin, high inflammation will also cause migraines. It'll cause weight gain. So it will exacerbate all of your Hashimoto hypothyroid symptoms as well. So let's think if we just do this in a smart way, and I'm not talking dirty keto where you're eating pork rinds and cheese all day. Let's lower your processed food intake. Let's remove sugar and gluten. Hmm. What's wrong with that so far? Pretty much nothing. Okay, now let's add in some good fats like avocado and olive oil and coconut oil. Do we see a problem yet? Any kind of inflammatory response in the body? No. Okay, so moving on, let's add in some really nice protein to feed your muscles, to keep your blood sugar stable, to give you energy, to help that hair that's falling out and the nails that are breaking and your skin that's dry. Grass-fed meat. Uh, wild-caught salmon, hormone-free chicken and turkey. Any problems so far? No. So I would love to hear the argument. I didn't really dive into which Dr. Google site that she landed on that told her that the ketogenic diet is bad for Hashimoto's. But if we break it down and look at it 
piece by piece, step by step, what the whole theory is on keto. And if you're doing it clean and not dirty, it's pretty darn good for Hashimoto's actually. Now, again, nutrition all comes down to the individual. Not everyone has to go super duper low carb unless your insulin is through the roof and your glucose is through the roof. Sometimes we can do a moderate carb. So we're still pulling out the processed foods. We're still dropping your gluten. We're still balancing out your blood sugar and your insulin. It's all very personalized. But the bottom line is the myth that we are busting is that the ketogenic diet is bad for Hashimoto's. Absolutely it's not. What would be better? So that's the argument I would pose. What's better? Do you think eating... Um, a plant-based diet is better. Well, I can counter that with all of this plant-based protein that we're eating is actually full of inflammatory um, ingredients, the lectins, very inflammatory. And when you're eating nothing but plant-based, you're consuming a high amount of lectins that again, starts that inflammatory process. A vegan vegetarian diet is high in carbohydrates it is low in protein. So now your hair and your skin and your nails are starving for amino acids. Your muscles are starving for amino acids and they're not getting it. So I can give you as many arguments against vegan vegetarianism. Nothing wrong if you are, if you're doing it right. But if you are, I really highly suggest looking at your protein sources and adding in a good collagen or some type of bone broth-based protein. Let's just say it. You're going to have to branch out a little bit and realize that the protein powder that's made from bone collagen, you know, I'm not even going there. I'm not even stepping on that landmine. Anyways, busting the myth that the ketogenic diet is bad for Hashimoto's. If you have insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes along with your Hashi, you should probably go low carb. Thanks for listening to the Thyroid Fix podcast. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button so you get updated on every single episode that comes out. Go to my website at amyhorneman.com and feel free to follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram.